0: Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. Today we're going to be talking about Chapter 2 in The Captain Mind, Looking to the West. We'll be discussing what the Eastern intellectual is looking for, how man's delusion of his cities sets him up to adopt religious political ideas, and ultimately that what he's looking for is the Christianity of the West. But the question is, is the Christianity of the West using its freedom in order to preserve itself? talk about this and more on today's book club. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. Before we get started, we have some announcements. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter. We have a bunch of cool stuff that's going on on the newsletter. You get The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman for 50% off when you sign up at the book club link on solomonscorner.com. That's solomonscorner.com forward slash book club. When you go to solomonscorner.com forward slash book club, there is a button there for the book club newsletter. You can sign up there and you will get 50% off for our October, November read Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. For those that don't know, Carl Truman is at Grove City College. He's a really smart guy. He wrote a good book. He was also in the documentary What is a Woman? And uh, discussed the philosophies of our day with Matt Walsh. So. He'll be an interesting read for us here. The second thing is a strange habit of mind giveaway from Andrew Claven. And uh, I have the my review copy. I'm reading it right now. It is definitely 100% a book that you will want to read, especially given the climate of our time. It goes after a lot of the ideas of our day within wokeism. I'm not going to go into any details because I don't want to spoil anything, but It is definitely worth the read. It's definitely worth your money. You should pre-order it. But if you don't have the money to pre-order or you don't want to go and buy it, maybe you're just not that kind of a person, we are giving away 10 copies of A Strange Habit of Mind. We pre-ordered those and we'll be giving those out as soon as they come to our subscribers randomly on the newsletter. So make sure you're signed up there. Finally, we have some local events. We're going to be having another Solomon's Corner seminar on the 24th. Details coming soon, so make sure you're on the newsletter so that if you're in the Charlotte area, you can sign up and find out about our next Solomon's Corner seminar uh, and RSVP for that. That's it. Now let's jump into the, the book. So this chapter is called Looking to the West, and there's two ways that the Eastern intellectual is looking to the West. The first is that they think the West is stupid because they've adopted communist propaganda. The second is that they are looking to it uh, in a hopeful way. They look to the West for hope. Before you jump to conclusions about what this might mean, it's important what Milos does at the beginning of the book, or at the beginning of the chapter. He describes man as thinking that his city is always going to be there. He says man tends to regard the order he lives in as natural. The houses he passes on his way to work seem more like rocks rising out of the earth than like products of human hands. And this is his civilization, economy plus morality. And what Milos does over the first couple pages is describe how World War II really devastated the Eastern Bloc significantly. He describes things like bombs going through houses, the Citizenry walking through the streets and looking into blown out buildings and being able to see living rooms and couches and imagining what life used to be like. We don't really understand what that could be like for us in in America because we were largely unscathed by the war, but the Eastern European countries were not. And this leads to the destruction of their economy and their values. He says on the same page, right at the beginning it destroyed not only their economies but also a great many values which had seemed till then unshakable and in america right now we seem to be doing the same thing we seem to be looking to the west the problem is is that we are the west and so there is no nothing outside of us we're looking almost to this this land that no longer exists because there's no nowhere else in the world and so we are doing what the eastern intellectual is doing in miloch's book we have this kind of bitter disgust with ourselves, but at the same time, we also love our founding fathers, and so we're in the same battle now that the Eastern Europeans were when they looked at us. So what happens when a man loses his civilization? Well, his money becomes worthless. He never thought that that could happen. He believes that his job is always going to be there, that his income is always going to be the thing that gives him status in the world, and then all of those things can go away just overnight. And what ends up ensuing is this moral depravity and this emptiness and a desire for a new belief system. But this ends up creating a a context in which the Eastern intellectual is now ripe for a new ideology. And since the old didn't save him during the war, he looks to something new. And this ends up being the method or dialectical materialism or Stalinism or however you want to phrase it. Ultimately, it's communism. And this leads the man to adopt a level of conformity and and realize that man is ultimately incredibly plastic. Milosh says, quote, which world is, quote unquote, natural, that world which existed before or the world of war? Both are natural. If both are within the realm of one's experience, all the concepts men live by are a product of the historic formation in which they find themselves. Remember, we talked about that last time. The dialectic believes that history is ultimately all that there is, and so everybody is just a product of that. And man is so plastic a being that one can even conceive of the day when a thoroughly self-respecting citizen will crawl about on all fours, sporting a tail of brightly colored feathers as a sign of conformity to the order he lives in. Now, if you're following any of the conservative politics or commentators, you'll know that the Biden administration has indeed actually hired somebody who has photos of himself uh, with a man on all fours dressed as a dog because he is a part of some sort of dog fetish. And it is not uh, not clear. Well, it's, it's clear that this is a, a sexual interest that the man has from the pictures. So at the end of the day, once again, when we read these communist authors, uh, they could not have foreseen possibly the precise manifestation of their ideas, but nevertheless, their ideas are coming to fruition in our own time, and that should terrify all of us because it almost seems like they're worse than they, even they would have would have thought. And so there are more things that happen throughout this book. We can't get into all of it. It's 25 pages long, and I've been under strict orders to keep this to 15 minutes. But my point is, is that... Man doesn't realize in prosperity how plastic he is and how willing he is to go and be an apathetic conformist. And so, and this is true even on the conservative side. Uh, Matt Walsh the other day was answering this question about whether or not Republicans or conservatives are too individualistic. And he had an insightful comment on this note that the Republicans or the conservatives in general, just cultural conservatives, I don't even think you have to put it into public uh, office context or or public office terms, or political terms, rather, but that we struggle with conformity and apathy more than we struggle with this virtue of independent thought, and I think he's right, and I think the more I read communism, the more i I realize how much that is the case. Conservatives are more likely to to say things like, Well, it's just a different world these days, or well, you know, there's nowhere else I can work.' Or, you know, whatever whatever the the reasoning is. And ultimately what they're doing is, even though they don't like what's going on, in a lot of ways they're similar to the Eastern intellectual. They don't like the system that's been put in place, but what other system am I going to go for? And this is where the true independent thinkers do have to go out, branch out, start their own businesses, start their own institutions in order to push back on the culture to give individuals a place where they can become the people that they are meant to become rather than just being absorbed by our contemporary materialist dialectic. And there definitely is one. We won't get into it today, but maybe in a long-form podcast we'll unpack that. So the, the 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 next thing that happens as we're going through this book that I want to highlight is that there's this quote of the Eastern intellectual is looking for something. He's looking for something in the West. He doesn't like the West because they're stupid. And after all, they're stupid. So how can Americans be producing all this great technology and culture and ideas if they're so stupid? And this is because the propaganda from the communists tell them that America is stupid and fascistic, and therefore, you know, they're not worth anybody's time and nobody should be trying to look to the West for anything. Yet America in its stupidity, quote unquote, continues to produce all these great things that the Eastern intellectual would like. And so he's he's caught within his own contradiction there. So he is looking for something in the West. And and Milos, you'll see if you're reading along with us, that he italicizes this throughout the book, that there's this something. It's a it's it's an actual kind of uh subject of the actual Chapter. He says on page 37, he says, More than the West imagines, that's us, and also some of the European Western countries, the intellectuals of the East look to the West for something, and he emphasizes something. The something they look for is a great new writer, a new social philosophy, an artistic movement, a scientific discovery, new principles of painting or music. They rarely find this something, again, emphasis on something. The people of the East have already become accustomed to thinking of art and society on an organizational and mass scale. The only forms of culture in the West which attain such a scale are movies, bestsellers, and illustrated magazines. No thinking person in the West takes most of these means of mass recreation seriously, whereas in the East, where everything has a mass character, they take on the dignity of being the sole representatives of the decadent culture of the West. And so they're looking to the to the West because we seem to have all this creativity and stuff, but then they look at it and they're like, but it seems to be this mass garbage production machine, and yet at the same time, some of these great things keep popping out of these uh, Western countries. And so when we look at what he's discussing on the previous page, what he's discussing regarding what the Eastern intellectual is looking for, when we get to the previous page on page 35, we see him kind of setting up this Christianity is dying out in the West kind of question, but this is exactly the something that seems to be what the Eastern intellectual wants. And so on page 35, right before we, we get into this, like, you know, the something the Eastern intellectual is looking for, Milosh says this, but the Eastern intellectual asks, what goes on in the heads of the Western masses? Aren't their souls asleep? And when the the awakening comes, won't it take the form of Stalinism? Isn't Christianity dying out in the West? And aren't its people bereft of all faith? Isn't there a void in their heads? Don't they fill that void with chauvinism, detective stories, and artistically worthless movies? Well then, what can the West offer us? Freedom from something is a great deal, yet not enough. It is much less than freedom for something. And this is the problem we have right now, is that the argument that a lot of the anti-woke are making is that freedom is just a good in and of itself, which is true to a certain extent if you really want to be like rationally sound about it. Sure, freedom is a good in and of itself. But that's not politically motivating. And the Eastern intellectuals and the, the survivors of communism are living proof that that's just not how the human spirit naturally inclines itself. It's when it finds freedom, if it's not if it doesn't have an objective that it's trying to attain in freedom, then it ultimately will reserve, revert back to a totalitarian state or a monarchy or something that says tell us what to do, which, you know, essentially is Give us freedom. Well, we don't know what to do with this, so tell us what to do with the freedom. And then all the laws come down that take away the freedom because you have to know why you have the freedom. And for us, for Christians or religious people, freedom is essential so that we can live out our religious practices. And so this is going to tie into that Christianity is actually the something that the Eastern intellectual is looking for. And so if we go to page 42 in the book, we see this incredible quote that confirms that communism is not just a political theory, but it also is a religion masquerading as a political theory. He says on page 42, Usually what is strong in the West is purely negative. Its criticism of the new faith, that's communism, is often accurate, but despite this, it points out no way out and introduces nothing to replace the method. This is a objection that many of us make today, that in criticizing wokeism, there's nothing given to replace it. It's, well, they're wrong, and therefore you should be able to know what to do now. But that's not how everybody thinks. Not everybody's an intellectual. Some people are going to need some guidance intellectually on how to live their life. And so the Eastern intellectual sits here with his bomb-destroyed, completely carved-out city with all of its morality obliterated, with all of its economy obliterated, and says, well, yeah, sure, the dialectical method sucks, and Stalinism sucks, and communism sucks, but the ideas we had before couldn't survive bombs. And communism seems to be able to do that. And communism does. There's, you know, Side note, a lot of people will say communism doesn't work. Well, it certainly seems to be able to stick around for a long time, even though it doesn't produce the results. As a political theory, it seems to be incredibly successful and difficult to weed out, which is why everybody's terrified of it. Continuing with Milos, to the Eastern intellectual, this is insufficient. That is, the rational destruction of dialectical materialism or communism, meaning intellectual arguments are not going to be sufficient. Milos says, one does not defeat a messiah with a common sense argument. The Christian religion, which is restricted or even exterminated in the countries of the new faith, always evokes a considerable, albeit unhealthy, amount of interest. Do Western Christians take the necessary advantage of their freedom? One is forced to the conclusion that they do not. Religion has become something in the nature of a vestigial custom, instances of which one finds in the folklore of various nations. Perhaps some pressure is needed if Christianity is to be reborn. The religious fervor of the Christians in the people's democracies would seem to indicate as much. One merely wonders if theirs isn't the piety of a mouse caught in a trap, and if it hasn't come just a bit too late. So there you go. Milos spells it out in no uncertain terms that what the Eastern intellectual is looking for is a faith. He needs something mysterious in order to put his faith in, and this is why it's it's interesting that Poland, being heavily Catholic, not only uh, was able to kind of push back eventually on on the communists, but that they weren't able to the communists weren't able to completely and totally overtake the history of Poland. Based on Milos's right, I'm not Polish, but based on what Milos is saying, it seems that the holdout was oftentimes the Catholic faith, and you see that in chapter one. We won't talk about that now, but he mentions that in chapter one. But it's important to understand the religious nature of communism. One of the things that a a religion does, the nature of a religion, is that it causes a human being to change their behaviors, attitudes, and beliefs on how they interpret things. And this is true of everything from Christianity to people who believe that aliens exist to communism. When when we talked with Dr. Brian Huffling about UFOs on um, several, several weeks ago, you can look at it. It's God, evil, and UFO, and aliens. Um, it's one of our earlier episodes. Later on in the podcast, we get into UFOs and we talk about the parallels between those who claim to have been uh, who have seen aliens or have been abducted they oftentimes have the same kind of testimonies that are associated with religious experience. And that is a change in behavior, a change in belief, a a willing to lose reputation for what they believe. And if you look, this is exactly what the new faith or communism has done in our country. There are plenty of people who, when they first decided to become communists, were willing to lose their jobs, were willing to to take a, a... cultural heat for their beliefs. they they suffered, they're willing to go out and protest they're willing to have life-changing attitudes towards things because they actually have adopted a religion. They end up believing that their political religion also has a messiah and that oftentimes comes in the form of a dictator. And as we talked again, not to hark back too much, but as we talked in the previous podcast, we saw some of the what I'll say loosely, Christian inspiration—well, it's not loosely Christian, but it's not Orthodox Christianity, obviously, because it it becomes heretical—but the idea that a lot of Protestant Christian thinkers are actually the 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 ground in which Marxism grew out of, because they took Christianity as its inspiration and ultimately naturalized it and materialized it into what would later become Marxism. And so when we look at what's going on in our own culture and we look at— the Captive Mind, and Milos, we can understand why it is that we are in such a difficult time. You can listen to the Daily Wire guys, and you can listen to these other political commentators, and they'll all say, it's a religion, it's a religion. But for whatever reason, probably, you know, practical ones and administrative ones, they have other things to cover. They don't necessarily get into the details of what makes it a religion. It's because when people are suffering, they become desperate. And in times of suffering, the institution that has the mouthpiece in order to convey its ideas is oftentimes the political establishment. And that becomes the first source of information to a dying culture. And when the disparities come, when the negation of the wealthy ends up leading to everyone being poor, and these great disparities between the poor class and the elite political class—the only mouthpiece that exists—is the political establishment. And it's, this is why the church, though Christianity specifically, provides the 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 values and morality in order not only to establish a city, but in order to establish an ideology that can rival communism and give somebody something to die for knowing that their death is not merely for the state but for a kingdom that has yet to come. So I hope you enjoyed this chapter. I'm Daniel Roberts. Join us next time. Keep thinking.